All righty, Amy, Jonathan, thank you for uh, taking time out of your busy schedules after the summer to uh, to meet again to talk about the the draft report that uh, ABAI published on or uh, posted on September 28th. So uh, to kick off our conversation, I'd love to just get y'all's general reaction to uh, to what they posted just a couple days ago. Yeah, thanks for having us. Um, I think it's really important to have this conversation. And I think one thing that we all agree is the importance of people reading these materials for themselves and, and making their own commentary. Um, that is to say, if they can, because one of the, the issues that I'd like to note first is that uh, the document is only available to ABAI members. And so that does cause us a great deal of concern because one of the things that John and I have been um, emphasizing from the beginning is that we need to hear more from stakeholders. And when you look at the composition of the committee, it's, it's a great committee of academics, all um, of them talented scholars, but there are no activists or autistic people. So that was one of the first things I noted. Yeah, and uh, I want to also echo that too, Robbie. Thanks for having us and, and putting this together. We appreciate it. Um, and uh, yeah, I want to agree with what Amy said. Um, uh, the priority one is get your uh, input, everybody who's listening, get your input and commentary to ABAI. If you are a member, you can download the document, read it, and comment. It's like voting. If you have the right to vote, use it. Use that right. you got to have your voice heard. Um, if you're not a member of ABAI, maybe you even canceled your membership or didn't renew it because of this very issue, because the ABAI annual convention um, depicts conference, uh, conference presentations with children with disabilities getting electric shock to modify their behavior, um, then you're going to have to ha access the document some other way. I'm sure people will be posting it on Facebook. Um, and I highly encourage you, read the document carefully and get your feedback to ABAI. Um, if you go to the website, there's certainly... Plenty, there's contact us links or, you know, info at, uh, th there's ways to contact ABAI to email and get your input. It may not actually be considered as part of the formal process. It probably won't. Um, but again, this is one of these issues where this is an opportunity to have your voice heard. Uh, it, it's not, I, I humbly think it's not responsible for us to stay silent right now in this moment. It's really important for our field. If we care about ethical treatment of people with disabilities um, to speak up and, and have our voices heard. Yeah, absolutely. We talked about the importance of uh, engaging all the stakeholders, and uh, I think this is this is the way in which uh, you do that. As as uh, somebody who's practicing as a behavior analyst in our field, uh, go on to the website if you're a member and, and leave your comments there. Uh, in terms of reaction to the content of the letter, I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts on you know as you we we haven't had it for very long, so this again just like every other interview was like relatively quick. Uh, we, we put this together yesterday and we, here we are today. So uh, we haven't had a whole lot of time to, to sit with it and, and quote unquote process it. But I'd love to get your, your quick reactions as you know, you two are very invested in the issue. And so we'd love to just uh, kind of hear your wisdom on on uh, what you read there. Uh, John, go ahead. You want to go first, Amy? Oh, oh okay. okay, sure. Uh, so first of all, <laughs> go, go ahead. 
Okay. So uh, first of all, just, um, you know, very thoroughly put together document, very well researched. There's no question that these four scholars put a lot of time and effort into this process. Um, and so that was exciting to see and not surprising. People who have long and illustrious careers as academics and scholars, they know how to do research. They know how to write a paper, uh, a cogent paper. Um, and so uh, that part is, is encouraging. Um, another piece that's quite encouraging is uh, when they did the site visit uh, to the JRC, they documented plenty of practices that are, I think, um, had been pointed out by activists for years. Uh, and so we already knew about them. But now they've been documented clearly by independent uh, investigators from ABAI um, that these practices, some of them, I think uh, the field are going to find quite concerning. And so I think that that's uh, really valuable, that that is in writing now, available for all of us to see. Um, and hopefully uh, it'll carry more weight that it's coming, that these that this documentation is coming from, you know, ABAI. Um, and so I think that that aspect of it is very valuable. Yeah, I agree. I think, again, it's just uh, the process that the committee went through um, was very intensive, you know, site visit at JRC and interviewing clients and parents, um, reviewing just tons of documentation from JRC. And so I think that that part of it's very strong. And like John said, it, it just documents some practices that are abhorrent. So, you know, they're, they're not following best practice in behavior analysis. And some of those things are more recent than others, but, you know, for example, they're not obtaining assent from the people that they're using shock with and the, um, the shock is delayed in some cases by minutes, which is a completely ineffective behavioral procedure. Mm. And, um, I'm not sure what they're doing there, why they go through with it. If they miss the opportunity to supposedly punish the behavior, I, what is the justification or rationale for continuing? Um, so these are just a, a handful of the things that are listed that are problematic with the JRC's use of contingent electric skin shock. Yeah, and, and to add to that too, one of the major concerns that, that folks have been noting for years and now is clearly documented is JRC using skin shock for um, behaviors that are clearly not life-threatening or dangerous. So things Absolutely. like not compliance, screaming, um, urinating on the floor, um, property destruction. Certainly some property destruction might be large enough and physical enough to pose a, a physical threat, obviously, um, but it's not entirely clear that they reserve it only for that. Um, and so that's uh, highly concerning and, and clearly documented now. And, and the justification that the report says, the JRC says, is that their clinical judgment is such that they need to shock non-dangerous behaviors also because it makes it more effective when they are shocking the dangerous behaviors. So the non-dangerous behaviors might be precursor behaviors. So maybe they're hoping to sort of stop an escalation to more dangerous behaviors by shocking the non-dangerous behaviors. Um, and another justification is that maybe they're part of the same response class. And so you've got to shock all the members of the response class. Um, that, in my opinion, is a fundamental misunderstanding of the concept of the response class. If that was true, they would also need to shock functional communication for the same reinforcer. 
So if it's escape motivated aggression, let's say, and they shock escape motivated screaming because it's part of the same response class, then they would also need to shock the person for saying, can I have a break, please? Because that also is part of the same response class. So that explanation, unless I'm totally misunderstanding the concept of the response class, but that explanation um, doesn't make sense. And I think fundamentally misunderstands uh, challenging behavior uh, from a functional perspective. Um, so it's, uh, that seems really problematic. And and the report, and I guess maybe we'll get to the specific recommendations of the report, but the report does specifically recommend against shocking behaviors that are not dangerous. So that does seem like a, a benefit or a strong point of the report. Yeah. yeah, it does. The report certainly seems to validate many of the concerns that we'd been talking about, you know, three or four months ago when we first started having these conversations and so I think in that sense, it's validating. It's like we had this we, we had this intuitive sense that, like, this is not right. And the report validates a lot of those concerns. So now we've got kind of the intuition validated by the, the data, or at least their observations and, and the data that they've collected there. Um, and then certainly lots of concerns. I mean, Amy, the, the concern you just raised regarding, like, the delay in, in shock, it's like, oh, man, like, what a fundamental miss behaviorally, right? Like, Going minutes yeah. without, I mean, if you're, even if you're going to use this technology, it's like, what's the point? And, 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 you know, we, we, we talked through the potential scenario of like at that point, potentially shocking pro-social behavior. Um, you're like, you know, you're so far from the instance or episode of, of challenging behavior that you're trying to address. It's like, oh man, like that is, that's a, It's a huge concern. Uh, and so I, I appreciate that y'all, uh, you know, went through the report and, and, and just, picked apart those things that you thought were, were most concerning. Um, in terms of uh, like other reactions, I know that there's there's so much in that report. And again, we're encouraging everyone, read the report, take action on the report, read it. If you're a member, uh, comment, it's critical that you do so. But other reactions to uh, you know your thoughts on whether it's the recommendations or other parts of the report that you want to talk about? Yeah, I think I just want to highlight a few more things that are in the report um, about the JRC's practice. One is that um, there, the plan isn't approved by an independent, um, behavior analyst. Um, it's not reviewed by an independent behavior analyst. Um, also, um, they are not working in conjunction with, uh, medical professionals from my understanding that it's not necessary that a doctor be involved to evaluate the person to see if there's some underlying health condition that's producing the behavior. And um, so unlike all the other places that the committee interviewed, um, they tend not to use psychotropic medications. And certainly those medications can be abused. Um, but I guess the impression the report gives is that there's not a multidisciplinary team using state-of-the-art information to try and help with this behavior so they don't do functional analysis of the behavior, for example, um, apparently. And so that's, that's what the report says. So I think if we take these recommendations, one of the implications is that the, um, the proposals for talks that John and I what well, we didn't see last year, but we said that we should pause and think about this, not accept these, maybe go for a moratorium. Those proposals don't meet the criteria that are laid out in this report. And so I think the point here is that people who've been crying out for attention to this issue, the 
the report basically says, yes, those things are all issues. And that if you apply those criteria to conference presentations, which is a separate step, this is a statement, but if you apply it to conference presentations, the conference presentations from the JRC don't meet those criteria. Which, by the way, from my perspective, your very first point, that's like, to me, that's an assumption that we would all naturally make that anytime anything like this were to be done, there would be a whole panel of like experts weighing in on the use of such an aversive procedure, right? Yeah. So then to, 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 to hear the feedback that um, that's not really the case is, is, is concerning. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely... To be fair, there, there's probably some type of multidisciplinary panel, but the report and the committee said that it's not the type that needs to be used, which has, mm-hmm. you know, an independent behavior analyst reviewing these plans, um, a medical doctor evaluating for underlying, underlying conditions that may need medication, things like that. Yeah. And, and there's a, a real strong consensus across the field of ABA that um, centers of excellence treating severe behavior take a biobehavioral or neurobehavioral approach uh, where they do have that real strong uh, panel of experts, multidisciplinary panel of experts, um, evaluating and weighing in on um, the entire process. And so that, you know, it's also a matter of checks and balances. Um, we... We behavior analysts, if we have the power to use something as aversive as shock to change behavior, we need someone who's not a behavior analyst sitting across the table from us, questioning us and, 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 and giving us input on what other potential causes or, or factors are influencing the behavior. Um, and yes, I believe the JRC does have a medical doctor on staff to approve all of the shock, um, but that's not the kind of, it's not the level of checks and balances and transparency that that the report's calling for. And that I think is really just sort of, honestly, sort of common sense level that folks are asking for in the field. I want to, I want to highlight something that I read in the report that I think says like the extent to which the committee went to really evaluate this is that three of the task force members received shocks from the device while they were at JRC. And the summary Mm -hmm. there was the task force committee members um, can conclude that these shocks are indeed painful. And they mentioned that the people that received them reported that they were indeed painful. So I think it shows you the commitment um, that, that the majority of the task force was willing to go to. Um, But also I think the highlights it's, it's it's not something trivial like a little static shock or something. It's mm-hmm. something that should be used with all of the caveats that they have if it's used at all. I think that, um, you know, if you read very carefully through the document, I think for me, I would say I'm not sure that there's ever a behavior that would really pass all those criteria. I'm not sure. And I think that's what those centers of excellence that John is talking about, the conclusion they come to as well, since they don't use it. 
Yeah, and that is a strength of the report that they interviewed um, the leaders at eight other, I shouldn't say other, eight centers of excellence in treating severe behavior. Um, and there's strong consensus across all eight of these other uh, centers that they don't use shock, it's not necessary. Um, and so that that is also very much a strength of the report and that and that there's a strong consensus on what <laughs> what processes are necessary. And one of them is a multidisciplinary approach. Another one is state of the art functional analysis. And so if you look at and the, and the report's real clear on this, too, if you look at the functional assessment procedures that they're doing at the JRC, if the report is accurate, those procedures are like pre 1982. And by the way, there's very little evidence, published evidence, to even support the use of ABC data <laughs> to assess function, which we all kind of get away with that and find it's good enough in cases that aren't that severe. But if we're talking about cases with severe, potentially life-threatening behavior, where we're gonna use the worst, least ethical possible treatment, we damn well better be using the very best functional assessment process. Um, and I don't know, I, I don't wanna go like ad hominem, I'm not gonna be mentioning any names, but if you just look at the people at these different centers of excellence, and then you look at the people at the JRC, they're, they're not even anywhere near on the same level in terms of accomplishment and, and, and rigor and training and expertise. Um, if someone's gonna be resorting to shock, it should be the best people in the world in functional assessment. It should be like a Wayne Fisher type person or Brian Iwata type person or somebody who's has the most expertise in identifying function of behavior. Um, it shouldn't be someone who works at the only place in the world that that uses it as a default procedure. Yeah. It seems yeah. like yeah. yeah, I just want to emphasize that. Yeah, it seems like I, there was this, there's an absence of rigor. Oh, go ahead, Amy. Oh, yeah. Um, I was, when I was reading on this issue, I found an interview, um, a newspaper article, I think it was, about the um, shock at JRC. And they interviewed Brian Awada, and he said, and this is years ago, he said, you know, the time for that is past. This is, this is not mm. a treatment that we need now. Um, and of course he yeah, himself did quite a lot of that early work on CYBUS, the self-injurious behavior inhibiting system. So that's right. One thing I thought and, of you know, at, Go ahead. Sorry, at, at the panel discussion on this topic at the ABAI convention um, last May, uh, multiple people who are world renowned experts stood up in front of thousands of people and said, haven't done it. So Wayne Fisher stood up and said, treated about a thousand cases of the worst behavior in the world, never had to shock anybody. In fact, never had to use pain as, as an intervention. Uh, people from the Marcus Institute stood up and said the same thing. Hundreds and hundreds of cases of the worst behavior imaginable, never had to shock anybody. So again, this just lacks, the, look, what's the probability that just the very worst cases in the world just happen to be going to this one little place that's a pariah uh, in the field right? And that that's the only place where these worst cases possibly go. And the, the report uh, interviewed these eight other centers of excellence and asked the question, how often do you have to discharge patients because of the severity of the behavior? And they all said, we don't do that. And it might not be literally zero, but they're saying that's not something we do. That's not necessary. Yeah. So do the math. I mean, how, how is it possible that all the worst cases only end up at this one school? Yeah. And and that makes me think about another point I wanted to make, which is they interviewed the parents, four parents of people who were receiving shock as part of their treatment protocol 
at JRC and the, the parents all strongly advocated for it and said it had made a huge difference in their child's life. And, but one thing that the report points out is that parents may not be aware of all the alternatives and that that should be part of this process that when someone is offered this as a potential treatment for their child, they're told about all the other treatments that are out there because these parents all said they felt like they had exhausted all the possible treatments, but we don't know if these parents had access to things like functional analysis and, and a, a you know, comprehensive um, intensive medical review and things like that for their children. So I, I think it's important to make that point that the, one of the recommendations is that parents be fully informed of what all of the treatments are, because I can see how, you know, having seen cases of severe self-injury, for example, I can see how parents would say, you know, my child's going to die as a result of this behavior. I'm willing to try, yeah. you know, maybe anything, but yeah. they, if they don't know what the alternatives are, then it's not a true choice. Yeah. Having like having worked with again, like hundreds of families in my 20 years of, of doing this, it's like they're, you know, and, and I mean this with the utmost respect, families aren't always sure what they want. It's like, they're looking to us, like we're, they're looking to us to help guide them. And so if you're, if you're really presented with one option and you think this is like last resort, it's like, sure, you're going to support doing it. And what we already know is that sure, it's likely to be successful, but that's not the point, right? Like, there's there there needs to be again just like this this infusion of rigor into the whole process from start to finish like you got to think about the, the the journey of that individual in ensuring that not only are we considering all all variables but also like before we even get there that the families have a, a deeper understanding of all the alternatives and the options that are before them. That just seems like, again, just a huge miss. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of misses. It's like, Oh, I think we, we missed on that one. And, and so I appreciate you raising that point, Amy. Yeah. You know, it's a really good point. Like parents should have already had contact with the best quality reinforcement based interventions implemented by people like, uh, you know, Kathleen Piazza, Wayne Fisher, uh, Louis Hagopian, these people, they, they should have experience with that top quality ABA treatment for severe behavior and then make the choice that isn't working for my child. Now I'll take some shock. That would be a, a true informed consent. Anything less than that, if they're not implementing that level of quality, they need like a Greg Hanley down there, GRC, doing the best quality possible functional analysis. And then treatments based on that don't work. Then I think that's actually informed consent. If the parents don't have that experience. I actually don't think that counts as informed consent. They're not being informed of what the actual real um, alternatives are to shock. Right, right. All very yeah. good, great points that, that y'all are making. And I think that's the strength of this document is that in addition to raising concerns um, that activists has, have raised in a different way that's, I think this document really reads to me like it's pitched toward academics. It's written by academics, has a lot of technical language. It's dense writing. Um, I think that, that this document serves, I would hope, to convince academics that there's 
been a serious ethical issue with how this is being implemented. To hear that it's done without assent, that it's done for behaviors other than life-threatening self-injury, um, just all of the things we've already discussed. I think that, I, I hope this convinces the rest of the field that this is, this practice is not ethical. And, um, and you know, I'm glad that John and I were able to be some small part of this to get the ball rolling, to get this very formal, very academic evaluation conducted so that hopefully um, the people who are able to affect change in ABAI um, can have something that is convincing to them. Whereas, you know, all the activist voices, which did serve to get John and I um, to take action, even if our action was just to say, we're not going to participate in this. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like the activist voices have been effective through a very indirect process. <laughs> Should we um, talk a little bit about, uh, I don't know, maybe, uh, I guess I've ha I have a couple concerns about um, the way that the, maybe that the task force was put together or sort of the stance. I, I, I feel like there's maybe a disconnect between the concerns that the community have and the way the whole process was initiated. And I don't think this necessarily takes away from the quality of the report. Um, but yeah. right from the beginning, the community was really crying out loud for an ethical and moral reckoning around this, con uh, this topic of shocking people with disabilities. Um, and so the response by ABAI was to put together a task force of academics who are expert scholars and researchers, but two of whom are basic researchers who have no experience or expertise whatsoever helping people who have problems. The other two are applied researchers who are excellent applied researchers with illustrious careers, no question about it. And they're also researchers, they're academics. They're not people who are primarily concerned with helping human beings on a day-to-day -day basis. Applied research can help people, of course, I'm not saying it doesn't. And also it's not the same thing to be a professor like me, right? And I do applied research. It's not the same as working all day, every day, um, in, in the context of really actually helping people as your primary directive. Um, and then the other uh, variable that might be worth mentioning is if this is primarily a, an ethical and moral issue, uh, why don't we have an ethics expert on the, on the task force? There are people, really smart, hardworking people who dedicate their whole careers to ethics of applied behavior analysis um, and who also have expertise in severe behavior. Why weren't any of these people on the task force? Is it possible that they were invited and they declined? I would like to know that. Um, mm -hmm. Is it possible that no one even thought of inviting them? Uh, I would like to know. <laughs> like, There's no transparency around that. Um, but putting um, a basic researcher who's very well-established basic researcher, um, no question about it, but putting Mike Perone as the chair of the task force really sends the wrong message, in my humble opinion, really sends the wrong message to the community that you're raising an ethical and moral issue to us, and we're going to appoint someone whose expertise is in doing research with rats and pigeons. And yes, punishment research. So there's a connection there, right? Punishment. Yeah. But I don't think the concern from the community was there isn't enough basic research around punishment. And so that's what we need to worry about. The concern for the community was people with disabilities are being abused potentially. So 
it's just such a disconnect. And I don't know. I, I hope that, that that disconnect was not intentional. Maybe it's more reflective of an ongoing issue that people have been raising for years and years and years about ABAI, that the leadership is disconnected from real life practice issues. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. Yeah. And I think that as you read the document, um, it's not, it explicitly says they can't answer moral issues. Um, they're not making a moral judgment. And, and the first focus of the document isn't even on um, like the ethics of these procedures. Mm -hmm. It's about, it almost seems kind of defensive, like justifying the fact that we're actually going to look at this and we're going to take a scientific approach and, and, mm. and view it that way. Um, yeah, one of the first of things it says is just because a treatment isn't popular doesn't mean you can't do it. I don't think that's the issue here that, that shock is unpopular. I don't think that doesn't yeah. seem like a central issue. <laughs> Unless I'm reading our community wrong. It's not a matter of popularity. It's not a matter of like what's politically correct or trendy or a fad or something. It's like people are genuinely morally and ethically concerned. Not, not least of which the autistic community who's been asking, yelling, screaming really for years for us to pay attention to this topic. Yeah. Hey, John, I don't, I don't know if you remember this, but early on when we did our interview, one of the, you know, one of our goals was to get, an ethicist, like get somebody who specializes in ethics to, to weigh in on the conversation, because even early on, uh, we had identified that as like, as a question. It's like, this seems like an, a really important ethical question for us to consider, right? Like we're highlighting the issue, we're bringing awareness to the concerns. And so let's, let's get somebody who, uh, whose expertise is in ethics. And so I, I, I appreciate you making that point because, uh, Early on, when we'd started, we we had even thought like, man, that would be really helpful for us to get somebody, and we we just couldn't get anyone to, um, you know, to meet that quick timeline because we turned around those interviews in like lightning speed before ABAI. So uh, maybe now would be a, a good time to talk with somebody. But yeah, that's a that's a just a brilliant point that y'all are making on that point on that issue. Yeah, I I definitely and competence matters. What? Sorry, Amy, go ahead. Oh no, what did you I say? Said, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, well, um, I, I was just saying competence matters. And yes. I mean, I, if ABAI was putting together a task force to look at uh, animal research et ethics in basic research, and they asked me to be the chair of that, I think it would be laughable. I think the entire basic research community would just laugh out loud. Like, that's got to be a joke, right? I mean, you ask the applied researcher to be the chair of an ethics committee on animal research, like that just it doesn't yeah. make sense. And yet yeah. somehow... Maybe it's because we come from this tradition of like basic research is like the real science or something in behavior analysis, but somehow that seems okay to have someone who's a, a leader in basic research as a chair of an ethical committee for humans. I, yeah. I don't, it's tone deaf to me. Yeah. And I think it, it's a really important point, John, that you've been making that um, it seems like there's almost like there's no way to reach ABAI through arguments about morality or about ethics that um, it seems very difficult, let's say, because the the emphasis seems to be and the stance in, in this document is like morality is a separate issue and we as scientists can't really talk about that. And of course that path leads to a lot of problems. Like our science must be practiced 
in the context of, of morality and ethics. Like that has to be part of good science is, is a strong ethical foundation. And, um, you know, I don't think we need this philosophy of like, oh, well, we can't really talk about morality and, 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 you know, I just don't think that should be part of this document. I think that the document should address the concerns very clearly and not this issue of whether or not, you know, shock is just not popular or like, like those seem like side issues that no one's worried about. Right. <laughs> Except and, and, yeah. And I will say like that, um, you know, I think the members of the task force in their defense would say that wasn't our job. We were given a very specific job to review the right. research and review what's being done, period. Um, and I think that's the problem. So I don't think these criticisms that we're making here are necessarily uh, are against the members of the task force or how they did their job. It's more the what the scope and the focus of the job was. And, and it kind of does seem like it's skirting the issue. So did the ABAI leadership notice people focused on morals and ethics and then say, here, instead of looking at that, look at science, look at the research. Did they do that on purpose to distract attention away from the real issue? Or is it, again, a disconnect? that they didn't get it, that that's not what people um, are concerned with. Um, I, I don't know. And I'm not trying to uh, guess what intentions were behind the leadership at ABA. I have no idea. Um, but yeah. either way, it seems like it's not addressing the, the main issue that the community is concerned with. Yeah, I think that's yeah, a I good think I, I think I'd mention this. Uh, I think I'd mentioned this in one of our previous interviews, but when I was trained as, a, as an administrator, um, in, in California, um, I oversaw the autism program, so I had to do a separate, you know, credential for that uh, to become an administrator. And I remember one of the very first, like, key points that they train all administrators in is, like, you have to engage the shareholders and you have to ensure that the shareholders uh, have a collective voice in decisions that you're going to be making that impact the district or the school or whatever it is, right? And so I think that there is just a bit of a disconnect. Like, I think we got more of the same as well crafted as that letter was and how it validates a lot of the concerns. I think we got more of the same like vibe. It's like, yes, we totally understand all this, but we still are concerned. And these are the reasons why, and perhaps those are the things that were left unaddressed, whether, you know, and we won't, it's hard to speculate whether that was intentional or not, but it's still just a, a, a gap that should have been addressed. And I think that, uh, saying something to the effect of like, well, we're not here to answer, you know, uh, uh, questions like this. It's like, well, but people are concerned and it's important to listen to them. Yeah. Those are the questions that people have. And I think we see that disconnect plays through in that, um, the, the document isn't accessible unless you're an ABA member and some members have not renewed their membership because of ethics issues. And, so um, it seems like ABAI is not interested in, in the broader community that they impact because those people have don't have a voice on this part. Now, of course, as John pointed out, people can email ABAI, but that's not a formal part of this evaluation of these recommendations of the task force. So... So, so that's a really interesting thing that you said, Amy. ABAI is not interested in connecting or hearing from or engaging the broader community that, that we serve and that, and that, we, that we exist to, to help. Um, that's interesting. I hope that's not true. I hope that that's a misstep. I hope that it's an accident or whatever. 
Yeah, um, and let me know. let me yeah. clarify my statement. What I mean by that is this feedback process does not include, as far as we know, members of the broader community or people who are well, no longer ABAI members. The task force itself did not include members of the broader community. They could have included uh, an advocate from, uh, you know, from, uh, for the developmental disabilities community, uh, even a parent advocate or something. Could have included a self-advocate from the autism community um, in the task force themselves. Uh, itself. Of course, I know the response to that is, well, they're not an expert in review of scientific information and they're not a scholar. Well, that's the point, right? But, um, but anyway, so the, the composition of the task force, in addition, the task force process did not, uh, did, did not include engagement with the broader community. They did interview the four clients at JRC, which is fantastic. It's really important. Um, and also they could have made some attempt to reach out to the community that's been crying out for this for years and years and years. So did they contact um, self-advocates from the autistic community? Did they contact former clients of the JRC? Right. Uh, you know, did they make any attempt, even I mean, even a half-hearted attempt, even saying we emailed 10 people and got three replies, something, mm. some attempt to engage the broader community. Um, and then yeah. none of that, apparently, or they did it and it didn't work and they didn't mention it, I don't know. Um, and yeah. now, in, now that there's the opportunity to get feedback from the broader community, no, no inclusion, no opportunity to get feedback from the broader community. So, so yeah, you could yeah. say that they don't care, they're not trying, or maybe it's an accident. But either way, the intent almost doesn't matter. The impact, well, this is what I learned from my social justice colleagues, is the intent is not just about the yeah. intent. If the yeah. impact is exclusion and, and lack of inclusion and failure to represent folks from the community, that's the impact. That's problematic. That can't be. That can't be the best we can do as a professional association. There's no way that's the best we can do. Yeah. 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 A colleague. A colleague and I just um, we gave a, a presentation last week on sentiment in organizational culture, and we talked about this concept that there are ways to actually measure sentiment, and mm -hmm. and it's it's certainly it's qualitative. You know, there are different there are different ways in which you could do that. But basically what we we're trying to communicate was there are ways that you can you can evoke or solicit feedback from individuals within a culture. In this case, we can apply it. Right. We're, we're a culture. We're a behavior analytic culture. There are ways to gather feedback and start to identify trends and key themes in what people are saying. And I think if I think if we were all honest with ourselves and we went through a process like that, I think we would discover that uh, that there are again just immense concern across the field for uh, you know in relation to this issue and again like the point that y'all are making is that unless you're an ABA member it's like you're you're not able to actually participate in this process because you have to log in Amy you said you signed up you like renewed your membership to do your thing right like to access this thing and I'm not sure that everyone is going to do that uh, yeah and so again like those are all like really good concerns that y'all are raising and I do think it's important to uh, to solicit this type of feedback from a much broader from a much broader audience uh, so that again a, a missed opportunity for sure yeah I definitely was not yeah, I'm not sure until I renewed my membership and it had a statement that you have to be a member to see it. Mm. Which, you know, forced my hand to decide if I was going to renew my membership. Um, and I decided that to be part of this conversation, 
Um, that was something that I needed to do, but it, it, I was surprised. I mean, I guess, well, we don't know. I don't want to speak for the organization. We don't know why they have restricted it to members. Well, um, again, a lot of my social justice colleagues uh, have pointed out that a lot of times when the community is crying out for change or progress, the uh, um, power structures cling to uh, sort of tradition and sort of policy and sort of precedent as reasons why, no, we can't, we won't, we won't change, we won't listen. Uh, and that seems to be a really consistent pattern at ABAI when there's a concern the first response to the concern is, well, in the past, we've always done X, Y, and Z, or our traditions are the A, B, and C. Uh, and so I'm sure, uh, well, I guess, I sh again, I shouldn't just assume what others are thinking, um, but I imagine uh, a common response based on the past pattern of behavior would be something like, well, that's who we always send stuff out to is the membership. That's that's our main uh, our main." Um, community that that we're that we're responsible to and yes of course it is it's a professional association it's a membership association and also <laughs> the broader community in which that association participates matters and i think that that basic point is um either not believed or not agreed with or just not heard at the highest levels of the leadership mm -hmm. i i was thinking yep. one thing uh, that I've thought about as a result of this whole process um, and and what's happened is that it certainly would be great, I think, if ABAI could be more nimble of an organization, that they were able to um, respond to things in a timely manner instead of, you know, having to undertake a, a process um, that's months and months and months and months, like, to just be like, Hey, those, those sound like really big concerns. Let's just kind of put the brakes on here and put a moratorium on it, um, to, to investigate this issue. And I think the fact that it wasn't, you know, the JRC was allowed to present another year. And one thing I've realized is that they use those presentations at ABAI as scientific justification for the work that they do, that they're allowed to to present in the foremost organization in behavior analysis. And so the fact that that happened one more year, I think is damaging um, to, you know, to the, the ethics of our field. I, yeah. I'm glad that my read of the document is that they will have to go through this process now of, of showing that it meets the position statement guidelines in order for it to be included. But yeah, maybe we'll see. Are. We'll see about that because there still needs to be a the revision process and a member vote and all that stuff. So if all of that happens before the decisions are made for acceptance or rejection for papers for the conference, then yeah, that could have an effect on the 2023 convention. Mm -hmm. So we'll see about that. Um, but if that process takes longer, then are they just going to stick to precedent again, which is sure, except the papers. We'll see. Well, Amy, John, are there any other thoughts that you'd like to share before we, before we wrap up? 
I'd like to say thank you to the activists uh, and the autistic community in particular who have been vocal about this issue for years. And I'd like to personally apologize for taking so long to listen myself. Um, so thanks to, to y'all. And then I'd really like to just say, please, everyone who's a behavior analyst or in the ABA community, please read the document and get your, get your words heard, whether it's through Facebook or social media or emailing ABA directly, or if you are a member, leave comments, um, have your voice heard. Yeah, just seconding that. Thank you to all the people who've put in so much time and effort and and haven't been listened to, you know, have have been disregarded by the organization. Um, thank you for that work to to bring these issues to light. And and like John, I'm sorry it took me so long to pay attention and realize how I was participating in it. And I'm happy that John and I didn't participate in it, that we're not participating in, in perpetuating it anymore. John, Amy, um, thank you for taking the time to do this. As, as you noted, Amy, that the paper is really academic. So it's, it's very helpful that we could add a bit of conversation to what's there that people should absolutely read. Um, so I just thank you for taking time to uh, share your thoughts, perspectives, for us to also, again, continue to establish this, this fact pattern to the extent that we can to get people to rally around a cause. I think that's how, I think that's how change is made. And uh, I appreciate both of you, like very busy uh, taking time to, to just have this conversation and share it with our amazing colleagues uh, that we all, you know, we, we love the field. We, we, it's, that's very clear. And so it's, it's, I, I appreciate the, the service that, uh, you know, that this is to, to everyone. So thanks again. Yeah. Thank you for thank making you, space yeah. for this conversation. Of course. Of course. Yeah. All right. Y'all. Well, I appreciate you. Okay. Bye.